So our passage for uh, today's sermon comes from Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 10 and reading through verse 21. Way back about a year ago, but only three chapters ago, at the end of chapter 9, we're told... In chapter 9, verse 51, we're told, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And Luke is unique in that from chapters 9, from 951 through 1927, Luke records for us what what is commonly called the journey to Jerusalem. it is a section in which there are many, now there are many passages that overlap and are repeated in other, other Gospels like Matthew and Mark, uh, but there are many passages and, and stories and accounts of Jesus' life and His teaching that are unique just to this journey section. Things like uh, the Good Samaritan, uh, the, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, Zacchaeus. Uh, the very uh, famous parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost sons. These things are all very unique in Luke. Only the Gospel of Luke contains these stories. This passage um, is actually, that, that long passage, the journey to Jerusalem, is, is sort of broken into three sections because that idea of Jesus... Uh, setting his face toward or journeying to Jerusalem is repeated three times. So first in 951, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Then in chapter 13, verse 22, so just the verse right after our passage, we're told, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And then again in verse 11 of chapter 17, again it says, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And so there's these three sections then of this journey that are taught. Uh, And part of it is to show that Jesus, especially in his ministry, was intentional and knew the point and purpose of, and direction of his ministry. He knew where it was heading, and he accepted that and embraced that, obedient to his Father, even to the point of death. So that means that this section that we'll read today is the last portion of the first section. So next week we'll start a new section where that statement comes in. And so, how does Luke wrap up this first section of this intentional journey that Jesus is taking toward Jerusalem and ultimately toward the cross and the tomb and the resurrection. He wraps it up with a Sabbath, a seed, and some sourdough bread. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. 
Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. And Jesus answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his, don his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from the bond, from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flowers, until it was all leavened. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So sometimes we read the Gospels and we... Do you ever feel like when you're reading, especially the Gospels, like the writers were at best ADD? Like you're reading something, and then you feel like, like you feel like you would, could, could get whiplash from the change of direction. You're just like, this happened, and then, oh, Jesus once said this. Oh, this happened here. Oh, Jesus said that. Oh, he told a parable. And it's like, what is going on? This is like, they just kind of, maybe they had a hat, and they just put all the things they knew about Jesus in the hat, and they stirred it up, and they picked it out, and... Like some of the things, they put three things in, so like Matthew, Mark, and Luke could each write about it, but some of them only had one, and so Luke reaches in and is like, ha ha, I got the, I got the lost seed, ha <laughs> ha, suckers, oh, coin, excuse me, coin. So is uh, that what's going on here? It seems kind of random, this, this did, did Luke just sort of plug this Sabbath story in? Was it a moment of, oh, I forgot, once this happened. And while there's no reason to think that this happened chronologically after what Jesus has been teaching, there is reason to assume Luke has more method behind this than a hat of scrap paper. Jesus has been giving warnings about, about not seeing the signs of the arrival of the kingdom of God. Uh, meaning, not seeing the signs that the Messiah had come. Jesus was giving warnings about not bearing fruit, fruit of repentance. And Luke here inserts, essentially, Exhibit A. 
says, do you want to see how it works out, how it plays out? To not see the signs of the Messiah who has come to save us. Here, here is a sign. Here's what that looks like. This is uh, the last time that Luke will record Jesus going to a synagogue. He only records four of those episodes for us in the book of Luke. Um, One of those times it says that it ends with wrath. The people who are listening to Jesus are filled with wrath. Another time they're filled with fury. And this time the ruler is indignant. He's filled with indignation. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus went to the Sabbath four times, and we have all four of those recorded for us. In fact, the first one that's recorded in Luke tells us, in Luke chapter 4, he adds, uh, Jesus was in the synagogue teaching on the Sabbath, as was his custom. It was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath to worship. It's what he did regularly. It even says here, it makes it sound like it's, it's just a, of course this was happening. In this first verse, he says, now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So let me first point that out to us, because maybe we just kind of gloss over that. Jesus, the Son of God, better than everyone, smarter than everyone, went to worship God on the Sabbath in the synagogue. He went to a place where he would be surrounded by people who were worse than him, including the pastor, by people who were not as smart as him, including the pastor. And he united with them in worship. He came to worship because that's what's done on the Sabbath. I think one of the reasons we don't go to worship or we don't consider worship as high a priority as we ought to is at the bottom line, we just don't think we need it. And essentially, because we think we're better than that. Like, I can can worship God in the mountains. I can worship God on the stream when I'm fishing, which, by the way, is only true if you're catching fish, because usually you're not worshiping God if you're not catching fish. I just, so I've heard. Jesus, 100% better than everyone else, goes to worship every Sunday, or every Saturday for him, excuse me. The thing is, like, that's not the only reason. That's not the only thing that keeps us from worship, is it? 
We don't always avoid worship because we think we're better than everyone else, do we? Uh, some of us maybe don't go to worship because we don't feel as good as everyone else. Some of us, rather than saying, I don't need it, maybe we say, I don't fit. Or instead of thinking, I'm better than them, maybe we think, I really need to get better first before I go in there. This brings us to the healing. This reminder that the kingdom of God brings healing because the king of the kingdom is a compassionate healer. This woman is hurting. Her life is dominated by pain and suffering. And so she went to church. I almost titled the whole sermon, That Time a Woman Went to Church and Unexpectedly Met God. But that sounds a little too cynical. I mean, it didn't really sound too cynical. It sounded really clever. But then, uh, but it did seem like it would mask (laughs) the reality that I wonder how many other people at the synagogue had gone to church to meet God. How many of us today came here to meet God? If we met the compassionate Savior with power to heal, would it shock us that we met Him here? We'd be like, wow, at church of all places. This woman goes to church and unexpectedly meets God. And again, we we just can't go through this quickly. Like, notice Jesus. Notice the verbs. Notice what happens here. Jesus sees her. He calls to her. He calls her to himself. He speaks to her, he touches her, and he heals her. Jesus sees the woman. He sees her brokenness. He sees her pain. And rather than being embarrassed by it or thinking, ah, she's going through some stuff, I just need to give her some space, he calls her, he invites her to himself. He speaks to her and he touches her. This woman who's so broken by her pain that who knows if it's contagious, who knows if it's even that she's ceremonially unclean, but that never enters Jesus' mind when he interacts with broken people. And as a result, she's healed. And I know there's other passages, even in Luke, where he says to a young woman, Your faith has healed you. But there is none of that in this passage. Jesus heals this woman 
not because of her faith and worthiness, but because of her pain and neediness. We've, uh, I don't know how often we've talked about this from the pulpit. I used to talk about it a lot at care groups or at uh, new members classes, um, which reminds me, I just learned that there's a family here who has never heard about poop in the brownies, and uh, that's really disappointing. I'm really going to have to bring that illustration back, because even saying that, I'm sure some of you, there's other families who are like, what did he, what did he just say? <laughs> so anyway, that'll show up one of these days. But <clears throat> we used to talk about how too many churches have this notion or this order of, of being a part of the community of behave, believe, belong. So first you got to behave, you know, stop doing the wrong things, start doing the right things. After you, as you behave, you know, then you'll start to believe. And after you can tell that you've behaved enough and you believe enough, well, then you, then you can belong. Jesus, in all of his interactions, never put it that way. And we as a church ought not put it that way. The order ought to be belong, believe, behave. Belong. You are welcome here. There is no other place you should be than right here, especially if you feel broken and worn down and weighed down by Satan's interactions in your life and you feel like you are never going to get free from it, this is where you should be. Right here. You belong here. Jesus is for sinners only. I did not come to heal the righteous, to call the righteous. A doctor doesn't heal the healthy. He heals the sick. You belong here. And soon you'll start to realize who Christ is and what He has done to free you and to heal you and to restore you. And His restoration, His restoring, redeeming power will give you a new heart and you will begin to despise the things you used to desire and you'll begin to desire the things you used to despise. You'll, you'll, you'll belong first and then you begin to believe and then your behavior is changed by the Holy Spirit. In fact, we could add just to make it more kind of right to this passage. You belong Belong, be healed, believe, behave. This woman is called to Jesus. He heals her, and then her life is changed. She glorifies God. She glorifies God for all that He has done for her. Do you feel broken? Do you feel bent over by your pain and suffering? Do you feel like you have screwed it all up again? Jesus 
sees you. Which, by the way, would be really upsetting if that was it. Jesus, like, I think it was Keller that said to be, to be loved but not known is just shallow. To be known but not loved is our greatest fear. Jesus knows you, sees you, and loves you. Jesus sees you. He is calling you to himself. Listen to his voice. Be healed. Let him touch you and heal you. Unfortunately, that's, that's not what the synagogue ruler thought. That if you're broken, this is right where you belong. And sadly, that's not what many in the church today are necessarily teaching. Too many times we present this idea that's totally foreign to Jesus, that you have to be good first. Be good, believe, belong. Go get yourself cleaned up and come to church. You need to get right before you get left. By the way, this is, this is one of the reasons that uh, Backyard Bible Camp, we, we write or at least put together our own curriculum, our own kind of what, what are the Bible passages we're going to do? What's the theme? What are we planning to do here? Uh, because there are many well-intentioned and very flashy and good-looking vacation Bible school programs out there. And so many of them tell children, so be good. You be good. And Jesus will love you. Uh, my pastor and I, we used to have to do the skits for vacation Bible school. I know this shocks nobody here. But our, our church did use those down in Raleigh. We did use those packaged programs. And, and there was one skit where uh, he played the, what did he play? He played the, he was the tortoise and I was the hare. And, uh, and so anyway, the hare is the, well, you know the story. The hair is a mess. And, and like I get in this mess and I run through the mud and all these bad things happen to me. And like on the last day, the skit is where, you know, the, you know, because it's vacation Bible school, everyone has to get saved on the last day. So the last day, the hair realizes his, what his folly was. And, and he says, uh, you know, he realizes and he's like, and he says to the tortoise, like he says this thing of like, and as he's coming to his senses, he says, let me go get cleaned up and then I'll come and join you and the rest of the people for the party. And as my pastor and I were reading this and preparing for it, like he literally burst into tears and said, we can't tell them that. He said, we can't tell them, go get cleaned up, and then you can join the party. And so we completely changed that line. I said, I'm a mess. I, I, can't, I can't go to the party. And he grabs me in a bear hug, which he did because he went to Gold's Gym. And he picks me up and he says, you're coming to the party. And I'm like, you're getting my mess all over you. And he says, I don't care. Let's go to the party. 
Too many in the, the synagogue, too many in the church would much rather, it's so much easier to say, get yourself cleaned up first. We don't want to have to deal with this mess. The synagogue ruler chooses possibly the most passive-aggressive way to confront Jesus. He does not talk to Jesus at all. He talks to the crowd. doesn't even talk to the woman that's been healed. He scolds the general population. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on one of those days to be healed, not the Sabbath. Do you hear it? Behave. Ought to. Here are the rules. Are laws, is God's law about the Sabbath wrong? No, but man's laws about the Sabbath are. Man-made Sabbath laws are wrong. God's Sabbath laws are come, rest, just lay it all down, stop, I've got this. In fact, Isn't that exactly what the woman did? Isn't she actually obeying God's law for the Sabbath? Come, rest, lay it all down. I've got this. Jesus says, you hypocrites. It's plural, so there's enough people in the synagogue that are on the ruler's side. They're like, yeah, yeah, she totally should not be here. She's kind of ruining the vibe. You hypocrites. You will free your donkey or your ox from its manger, but you won't free this woman from her bondage? In fact, Jesus uses the ruler's name. He says, or the the ruler's own words. He says, ought not this woman. Ought not this woman, this daughter of Abraham, bound by Satan for 18 years. Shouldn't she be freed from that, especially on the Sabbath? The Sabbath itself is a picture of being released from bondage. The Sabbath was a weekly reminder, you're not slaves anymore. You've been freed. Do you think in Egypt they had one day a week off? Do you think they had 52 days of vacation in Egypt? No. The whole gift of the Sabbath was, you're free. You are not slaves anymore. If there is an ought to, Jesus says, in this situation, it's that you ought to use the Sabbath to care for your neighbors. You ought to work to free them from their bondage to Satan. Jesus had warned in just... The previous passage in in chapter 12, verse 51, he warned that he had come to bring division. And this very interaction in the synagogue on the day of worship shows us how divisive the love and compassion and healing of Jesus can be. The righteous or the self-righteous are indignant. The church is divided by the ones who are sure they don't need to be healed and the ones desperate for healing. Luke tells us in verse 18, therefore, 
Jesus said. And so we actually know that at least in this situation, Jesus teaches these two parables in connection to what just happened. Therefore, Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? It's, it's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and it became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Why? Why does he connect these two parables to what just happened? These ideas of the kingdom of God grows unexpectedly and spreads unstoppably. This idea, this growing up, man plants a mustard seed, nothing very significant to look at, happens every day. Who cares? What's the big deal? But it grows. It becomes such a large plant that even the birds of the air can make nests in it. It's more than just food. It's actually shelter. This woman is healed. Does it matter? It doesn't matter how indignant or furious or shamed or vengeful the rulers and the Pharisees and the priests get. The kingdom of God that looks like nothing is happening, is going to grow. The indignant ruler can't stop it. The vengeful, wrathful, furious priests won't stop it. But it sure looks like nothing, doesn't it, when it starts. Healing a woman. Healing a woman who, I mean, she's learned to live with it 18 years. What, what's the big deal? But what happens? Where does she go from there? She's healed after 18 years. It's nothing. It's insignificant. It's so mundane. But she'll go back to her village. A changed person. And who won't ask what happened? You'll never believe it. I went to church and met God. And the spreading, the spreading. The woman has a small bit of bread starter. Some of you make sourdough bread, so you know that you need sourdough bread to make sourdough bread. Oh, I know, uh, I, I forgot to email her, but I know uh, Megan Reese had sourdough starter. And she would often bring sourdough bread over to us because one of Myra's favorite breads is sourdough bread. But uh, the sourdough starter that she had, she could trace back to her grandmother's sourdough bread starter because you have to keep it going. And you put it in the next lump and it, it spreads in and it makes that large loaf. And you take some of that and set it aside so that it's ready to be put in uh, the next loaf. This woman has this little lump of bread starter, and she puts it in three measures of flour. Now, we don't talk this way, do we? So we're like, great, what'd she make? Three loaves of bread? No. Three measures of flour is the equivalent of about 128 cups of flour. 
That's 16 five-pound bags of flour. To make that into bread, we'll take about 42 cups of water. And she will end up with over 100 pounds of dough. And with one insignificant lump of leaven, it will all be leavened. It will all be changed. It will happen quietly. It will happen secretly. It will happen almost imperceptibly. But it will happen unstoppably. The leaven does its work. Nothing can stop it. And the whole batch is leavened. Do you want to change the world? Start one soul at a time. Change one person's life. And I don't mean like, I just mean like change their life by saying something nice to them. Seeing someone bent and broken and encouraging them. Do you want to change the world? Change a diaper. I know it might sound strange, as now for three weeks in a row, we've talked about Tim Keller and Harry Reeder and and Stephen Smallman. We've talked about some of the things they have in common. Do you know one thing they have in common? Their moms changed their poopy diapers when they were little. It's not a huge thing we're being called to. It's a small thing, an insignificant thing, so mundane. But what is the impact? What is the impact of expressing a word of encouragement or gratitude to a husband, to a wife? What is the impact that some patience with your son might have? As dads, we all know the impact that our impatience with our sons have. Probably each of us have had moments where you say something and you see the face drop. And you know you'll never get that chance again. To your son, to your daughter, a word, a patient word to your son, a kind word of encouragement to your daughter. I'm so glad I have a wife who, who so wisely stands behind my daughters so many times when I interact with them because there are so many times that I go, and she stands behind them and goes, and I'm like, you look pretty today. What impact does kindness have? It sounds so small. It sounds so silly. It sounds so unnecessary and yet it works its way in and the good that it can do is unstoppable but we are here we're at this table and i want to ask you again what i we started with in the as we looked at the story do you feel first of all do you feel small and insignificant 
Do you feel mundane? Do you feel small and insignificant whenever you think about yourself other than, other than one time when you think about your failures? Does everything in your life feel insignificant other than your brokenness, your failures, your sin? Does it feel like it is nothing short of a mountain weighing you down, bending you over, and there is no way that God would forgive you again? Jesus is looking at you. Jesus sees you and is calling you to himself. He is speaking to you words of encouragement and hope and healing. And he just wants to touch you and make you whole. He wants nothing more than to deliver you from your bondage to Satan. And you don't have to get cleaned up to get cleaned up. All you have to do is take, receive, believe. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our rock and our redeemer. You are our healer. You are our compassionate shepherd. You are the one who would leave 99 well-fed sheep just to go get that one who has wandered off. Jesus, you, you see us for everything we are. And still you call us to yourself. How amazing your grace. God, I pray that we would not ignore your call. Ignore your compassion. I pray that we would not be so blinded by our self-righteousness that we would not even see how desperate our need is. I pray that hope of Christ would be a church that lives out the idea that you belong here and that while you are here, we will show you Christ so that you might believe and be changed by his love for you. God, I'm sure that there are so many here, maybe even all of us here, who feel so weighed down and broken. Would you open our hearts to come to you, even right now, in a time of confession and repentance? God, would you hear us as we silently come to you as you have called us.
Jesus, you don't. You don't spread a table for the well-fed and the unthirsty. You invite the starving and the famished to come and eat, to come and drink. to have water and food at no cost to us, but at such a great cost to you. I pray that as we take this cup and this bread, that we would remember and believe again that you, Jesus, you saw us and called us to yourself, that you came to free us from our bondage by taking the weight of that bondage on yourself at the cross. You died for us so that we could live with you. Help us to remember and believe your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.